0: Luke chapter 20, please have it open before you. A couple of weeks ago when I preached on the parable of the ten minus from chapter 19, I began by checking with you why Jesus had chosen to tell this story, to preach this parable at this moment in time. You might remember that he was in the company of some people who thought that the kingdom of heaven was about to come immediately. And Jesus told this parable to show them that we don't know when the kingdom will come in all its fullness, but he wanted us rather to focus on how we would live in the light of the the returning, the coming of the kingdom of God. He told us that we're to live courageous lives, that we're to make the most of every opportunity that God gives us, all those resources that he's given us, we're to invest them for his glory. So much for the parable of the minas. What about this parable today, this parable of the vineyard? Why does Jesus preach it? Well, Luke's made it, again, quite clear for us. In the second half of chapter 19, he tells us that Jesus has completed his journey to Jerusalem. He tells us that Jesus is going to the temple courts. He he seems to go there daily to teach the, the crowds. The religious leaders don't like it. And so he opens, look, opens chapter 20 telling us how one day the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Who gave you this authority? The religious establishment upset that this Galilean rabbi has started to preach right, right at the center of their religious life right at the seat of their power if you like how very dare you by whose authority are you doing this as is so often the case in these confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders they're they're actually trying to put Jesus in trouble as well they're trying to put him between a, a rock and a hard place if he says that he's he's there in his own authority, then it's very easy for them to dismiss him. Why would we listen to you? Preachers and teachers are to a penny here in Jerusalem. There's no reason at all we'd listen to you. If, on the other hand, Jesus says, my authority comes from God or from my Father in heaven, then he puts himself in grave danger. He could be charged with blasphemy. Stoning would be the penalty. So their question that day is not simply a matter of seeking academic credentials for somebody who's, who's lecturing in public. They want to trap Jesus. This is very dangerous ground Jesus finds himself standing on. This is a matter of life and death. Perhaps you've noticed by now in these moments when people ask Jesus questions in public, he rarely honors a crooked question with a straight answer. He never collaborates with sinful behavior. He always exposes it. What he does here is very clever. I don't know if you've noticed that. Jesus is always clever. He throws a question straight back at them, a similar question about authority. If you guys are so good at discerning and policing authority, answer me this. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin. John, is he baptizing in in God's authority or in his own? Do you see what he's done? He's put the religious leaders in exactly the same predicament that they have tried to put him. They now are caught between two options, neither of which is good. If we say that John was baptizing him in the name of God, then Jesus would be right to ask us, "Well, well, if he was, why didn't you obey him? Why didn't you let him baptize you? If, on the other hand, we say that John's simply doing stuff off his own bat, doing stuff under his own steam, that God isn't in it, then these people all around here, these people in the temple listening in in this conversation, they'll turn on us and they'll stone us. They think John's a prophet sent from God. So the religious leaders were stumped. They didn't know what to say Uh, more correctly, I think they didn't have the courage of their convictions. So they chickened out verse seven. We we don't know where John's baptism was from. Well, says Jesus, if you won't give me a straight answer to this authority question, then I'm not going to give you a straight answer either. Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Jesus doesn't answer the question directly in a way that would allow them to drag him from the temple and stone him but he does answer the question the authority question and he does it by telling a story this parable of the vineyard this is the last parable Luke records in his gospel Scholars reckon it might be the last parable that Jesus ever preached. It certainly has an air of finality about it. It it feels to me like it deals in ultimate matters, actually. As I've been studying this parable this week, I've come to the conclusion that in this short story, Jesus is telling the story of the world. Let's pause and pray. And invite the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is our only and always our best guide for how to live in this world. It tells us who you are. It tells us who we are. And it tells us how we might live in relation to you. Lord, we pray that your word, spoken by the living word, Jesus Christ, might live in us today. Come by your spirit and speak to us, we pray. Amen. This parable, this story of the world, I want to look at it with you in three parts. I want to suggest that it helps us answer the question, what's wrong with the world? The question, what's God done about it? And the third question for us to consider, how will we respond? So first of all, the parable tells us what's wrong with the world. Let's just check, let's do what we did a couple of weeks ago, check that we've understood this parable by asking some questions. Who is the landowner? What's the vineyard that he's rented to his tenants? I'd say that many of you, if you've grown up hearing the Bible taught, if you've been paying attention even to this short series and the parables, you'd be able to hazard a guess. It sounds like the landlord might be God, the tenants might be people, or at least some group of people. If you've got that well done, you're on the right track. Judging by what Luke tells us, Jesus' first audience, particularly the religious leaders, heard this story in a very particular way. We're told, verse 19, that they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. Hmm. Why is that? Why did they take it so personally? Well, it's because they knew their Old Testament. Flick with me to Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, you'll find it on page 689 if you're using the Pew Bible. The religious leaders Jesus was talking to that day knew that this imagery of a vineyard isn't original. Jesus has borrowed it. The prophet Isaiah 800 years earlier had composed an allegorical song and it's very similar to this story that Jesus tells. Look at the opening verses of Isaiah 5 and you'll see the relationship between the two is unmistakable. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, if, if we were reading that, we, we might not be too sure still what Isaiah is talking about. Thankfully, he interprets his allegory. Look at verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. The people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. The vineyard is Israel. Isaiah's song was was far too famous. And the parallels that Jesus makes with it were far too obvious for the implications to be lost on his audience that day, the Jewish religious leaders. They knew that Jesus was talking about Israel and about them. Well, that creates an interesting moment for us because if it's clear that Jesus is talking about Israel, he's talking to these religious leaders, then does that get us off the hook? Does that mean this story can't really mean a whole lot for us? At best, it's a curiosity for people who like Bible knowledge. That would be a a big mistake to make as I've said earlier, I, I believe that this is the story of the world. I believe that in these short verses, Jesus is telling the human story. One has described it as the story of privilege abused, generosity despised, and responsibility shirked. This is the story of the world. Jesus isn't just describing Israel when he talks about this vineyard. He's describing every person who's ever lived. He's describing our our fallen humanity. He's describing this rebellious planet where God's gracious blessings have been answered with human contempt. This parable, I think, tells the story of the church You'll see the way Jesus tells the story that the first tenants are somehow privileged. But the church has been privileged. We know much more of God's revelation than, than these first tenants of the vineyard, the, the Jewish people whom Jesus is addressing. But still, we find new ways to reject God and to be unfaithful. This parable, I think, tells the story of our land, Great Britain. Ireland, a millennia and a half of Christian history and tradition, and yet we're, we're running away from, from the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ at an alarming rate, secularizing, becoming once more a pagan nation. This parable speaks not only to the church and to our nation, it speaks to us as individuals. Some of us are here this morning because we've always been here we've always all our lives long been in places where the bible is taught and the gospel is preached and yet we can be like like the guys in that first parable that we read about our hearts are hard when the seed is sown it does nothing as i've said i don't think it's an overstatement to say that jesus is describing for us here the conditions of the whole earth This world created by God, full of productive potential. It's like like a farm waiting to be be farmed, waiting for a crop to be raised. All it needed was people to come and, and to work, work the land. That was Adam and Eve's commission to care for the vineyard. This is the human story, your story. Folks, if, if we can accept that, if we can accept that this story of the vineyard's our story, then, then this first question becomes very important. What's gone wrong? The answer, according to Jesus, is very simple. Look at verse 14. At that moment when the, the landowner sends his son The tenants say, this is the heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. It's it's very, very simple. We're supposed to be tenants, but we want to be owners. We're supposed to be under the king, but we want to make ourselves king. Folks, for me, one of the greatest gifts of this short parable is how it shows us quite clearly our posture before god this dreadful posture of humanity that refuses its creator god god's given us such a wonderful calling he's given us such privilege and such dignity he's blessed us with with opportunities for a very rich and meaningful life we thought about that 2 weeks ago in the parable we looked at then it's appalling that we should be so little prepared to render anything back to the God who's given us life and so much goodness. The ingratitude that we see in this parable, it's staggering. But it's ours. What makes this rebellion against God so pathetic too is that it's, it's futile This rebellion against God it's doomed to fail it's crazy one writer says that puny creatures should wave their fists at omnipotence rejecting anything and everyone that God sends to remind us of the debt that we owe him thinking that we'll get away with it surely he won't tolerate it will he The extraordinary thing about Jesus' story is that God does tolerate it for a long, long, long time. So we've seen what's wrong with the world. That brings us to our next question. What's God done about it? Again, it's not hard to find the answer. Right there in Jesus' story, verse 13. When the owner of the vineyard saw that servant after servant was abused by the tenants, he said, what shall I do? I'll send my own son whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. If that verse didn't connect with you when we first read it, please let it do so now. Notice the Patience of God. He's provided rebellious human beings with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to, to, to repent, to turn to Him, only to find himself slapped in the face every time. And yet, He still desires to show mercy. Yet, He restrains His righteous anger. He turns the other cheek. And then, He offers one last chance. Even if it will cost him everything. My son. whom my love. Don't miss the patience, the mercy, the kindness of God. Don't miss either the, the, the theology. Notice that this is the point where Jesus finally answers the question. Do you remember he's been asked that question? Tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Who gave you that authority? What Jesus does is he writes himself into the story he's telling. By telling the story of God the Father who says, I'll send my son whom I love, Jesus is introducing himself into his own story. Jesus now claims to be God's last resort, his final word, his beloved son. He is coming with the very authority of God. And so we'd better listen to him. We had better submit to him. We had better respect his authority. We have no choice. What did God do? about our human problem he sent his son whom he loved Jesus Christ what did we do in response verse 14 when the tenants saw him they talked the matter over they said this is the heir let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him God sent his son. We killed him. We preach the cross of Jesus Christ often here at Hamilton Road. There's so much to say about the cross that we'll never exhaust its meaning. But here in this story, I think we get a, it it again has a very particular gift to us. I think it asks us, it invites us to consider the cross from a human perspective. It it invites us to consider this question. What did human beings have in mind with the cross of Jesus Christ? When we look at the cross from that point of view, we can see it as the ultimate insult. The cross becomes the supreme gesture of human contempt for the rule of God. It's the final snub that puts the lid on centuries of snubs that God has received from the human race. We couldn't accept. We couldn't even tolerate anyone who would come and challenge our crazed pursuit of independence. Anyone who called us to recognize our accountability to our maker. We couldn't tolerate him. So we crucified him. That's what the cross means from a human perspective. It shows how much we hated the God who loved us. The God who told us that we're not God. Friends, I think it's extraordinarily helpful for us to understand that about the cross of Jesus Christ. But I would never want to talk to you about the cross of Jesus Christ only from a human perspective. We must always look at the cross from God's perspective and ask, what did God have in mind with the cross of Jesus Christ? The truth is, he had rebels like you and me in mind. That's what he had in mind. Jesus went to the cross to forgive human rebels. Do you you remember his dying words? Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. On the cross, Jesus Christ died at the hands of men who were desperate to kill him. so that he could take the punishment they deserved and so that a righteous God for, could forgive their sins. It's staggering. Absolutely staggering, this amazing grace. In the very moment where the human beings were making their ultimate insult against God, he reaches out to us with his greatest Grace. Isn't God's love beyond our wildest dreams? Isn't Jesus just glorious? What's gone wrong with the world? We have rebelled against our creator God. What's God done about it? He's given his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. One last question. How will we respond? Before we come to our response, please notice God's response to this final rebellion on the part of the tenants, verse 15 and 16. Jesus tells the story of a world that kills God's son, and he asks the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And he gives this chilling response. He'll come and he'll kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This passage speaks of God's judgment, God's judgment on those who have killed his son. It's a hard message, but it's one that we must hear. Do you really believe that God will tolerate our preposterous insolence forever? Do you think that God's going to stand idly by while we kill his son and give his son no vindication in the face of his enemies? Friends, I need to tell you, God is furious with the sin of humankind. And he has every right to be. Notice too that Jesus doesn't shift the blame for God's judgment somehow to the Father. He doesn't divide the Godhead. He doesn't say, you know, I'd be really happy to, to forgive you without making a big deal of it, but my Father, he, he's different. No. Jesus makes himself the basis for our judgment. He, he does so by describing himself in terms of stones, verses 17 to 18. He quotes from three Old Testament passages, and the NIV is good enough to alert us to to the quotation from Psalm 118, but it doesn't make clear that he's quoting also from Isaiah 8 and from Daniel 2. Jesus is issuing a solemn warning here. The stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. The people of his day rejected him They're going to get rid of him. They're going to do that in a few days' time as they nail him to a cross. But that stone rejected by men will be elevated by God. It'll become the cornerstone or the capstone of the entire created order. Jesus Christ, judged by men, will judge all men. Some people tripped over Jesus. These metaphors take a bit of teasing out. He, he talks about being somebody you could have tripped over. When he was in his lowly state, you could have tripped over him. You could have said, there's not much to him. That's, that's not the son of God. The, the response of those people to Jesus during his time of earthly ministry will lead to their destruction. But Jesus is no longer in a lowly state. He's been raised up. He's the capstone. He stands now over all of creation, holding it together. And for people who are foolish enough to keep rejecting him, he will fall on them from a height and crush them, as in Daniel's story, Daniel's prophecy. Do you see, dear friend, what Jesus Christ is saying? It's dangerous to reject me. It was dangerous back then, and it's dangerous now. You are playing with fire if you reject me. Maybe all this talk of God's judgment is difficult for you. Maybe you recoil when you read in Scripture about judgment or hell or hear the preacher. Let me say, I don't relish talking about these things. But let me explain to you why I do. I consider Jesus Christ to be the most loving person who ever lived. If he's going to talk about God's judgment and hell, then I believe he's doing so because he loves us. Because he's talking about realities that he does not want us to experience in a place that he does not want us to go. I don't believe that Jesus Christ would go voluntarily to the cross and suffer the agonies that he suffered there if it weren't to save me and you from something worse. Of course, judgment is real. Of course, hell is a reality. And it's because Jesus loves us so that he's willing to warn us about these things so that we will never, ever know them. We're trying to work out how we're going to respond to our human rebellion and God's offer of rescue. I'm sure you see by now that we all face a choice. We have to decide what we're going to do with Jesus Christ The choice is actually slightly different, I think, than you might imagine. You might imagine that your choice is to have to do with Jesus or not. That's not your choice. Your choice is to be broken before Jesus Christ, either now or then. To be broken by Jesus Christ here and now means to do what the biblical writers call repenting and believing. They, They... What they're talking about is is me getting off my high horse, bowing down, confessing that I'm a sinful rebel and swearing future allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be broken by Jesus Christ now, to be humbled before him. To be broken by Jesus Christ there and then is to continue in my rebellion To stand before him on the final judgment in my own strength and to be crushed by him. Condemned to death and destruction because I remain complicit with a rebellious world. So my question, the question Jesus asks of anyone with this parable is what are you going to do with Jesus? Will you bow before him now, in repentance, receiving his forgiveness? Or will you be forced to bow before him then to hear his judgment on your rebellion and sin? In this short parable, Jesus has told the story of the world. It's the story of my life and of yours. We're not quite finished with the story. There's a glorious reversal here that I don't want you to miss. The stone that the builders rejected did become the capstone. The religious leaders will crush Jesus. The Father will raise him to life and to glory. But even the vineyard, there's a reversal. Did you see it? Verse 16. When the landlord has rid the vineyard of the corrupt tenants, we read that he will give the vineyard to others. God still loves this world, he still wants people who are his who will love him and honor him and enjoy life in his kingdom. Uh, Some of you may know we host a a weekly Bible study here for for some of our friends from Iran. I see the the fellows are are sitting up there together in the pew. I hope they won't mind me sharing this story. A few months ago, it was my privilege to be leading the study with them. We were studying in Mark's gospel, and we came to the point in Mark's gospel where this same parable is recorded The parable of the vineyard I'll never forget our discussion we worked our way through the parable it's good fun when you're working between English and Persian we we did our best we made our identifications who's the landowner well that's God the vineyard that's his world The tenants are the jewish people of the old testament it's maybe also those who've grown up in christendom and have have always had the privilege of knowing god's word and the gospel we thought about the rebellion the punishment the coming of the son and then we had one last identification to make who are the new tenants in the vineyard I asked the question and let it hang for a while. Let God's word and God's spirit do their work. And it was just wonderful. Because I could see eyes lighting up, I could see smiles creeping across faces. Who are the new tenants? Well, that's us. That's us. Anyone from any religious background, any cultural place, any time in history, any position in society, anyone who will bow the knee before Jesus Christ, the Son whom the Father loves, is a new tenant in the vineyard. I told the the fellows that the vineyard's no longer for Jewish people or for people who grew up in Christendom. But it's for Irish people and it's for German people and it's for people from Iran, it's for people from any part of the world. That's what we've been celebrating here this week at Bangor Worldwide the truth that the the kingdom is for all. Anyone who'll bow the knee and submit to Jesus Christ. Have you done that? If not, you must today. Do it today. Let's pray.